you would, please turn in your Bibles to 1 Peter chapter 5, the epistle of 1 Peter in chapter 5. We come in our regular exposition of this passage, which was begun late last year, to the fifth and the final chapter. We consider this morning verses 1 through 5, or at least the first part of verse 5, 1 Peter chapter 5. I'd like to ask you to follow along as I read verses 1 through 5. First Peter 5, beginning in verse 1. So I exhort the elders among you, as a fellow elder and a witness of the sufferings of Christ, as well as a partaker in the glory that is going to be revealed, shepherd the flock of God that is among you, exercising oversight, not under compulsion, but willingly as God would have you, not for shameful gain, but eagerly not domineering over those in your charge, but being examples to the flock. And when the chief shepherd appears, you will receive the unfading crown of glory. Likewise, you who are younger, be subject to the elders. Clothe yourselves, all of you, with humility toward one another, for God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. In July 1961, Players and coaches for the Green Bay Packers gathered for the first day of training camp. The Packers had just been handed a loss in the Super Bowl the previous year to the Philadelphia Eagles. The team had gathered to hear from their young coach, Vince Lombardi. Coach Lombardi would go on to be perhaps the greatest football coach of all time, winning five NFL championships. But at this stage in his career, as he was just beginning, he hadn't won anything yet. As Lombardi looked at his team, fresh off a crushing defeat, he began the new season with an address to the team. He began this speech by holding up a football and saying to his team, gentlemen, this is a football. Now, what was Coach Lombardi doing? He was saying, we're going to start from square one. We're going to return to something so basic, so fundamental, and we're going to retrain and retool this team such that the mistakes that led the team to lose in 1960 would surely not be repeated in 1961. And his teams from then on would work especially hard on the basics of the game, and they would eventually build a championship pedigree as teams that excelled in the fundamentals. Well, why do I begin with this story? Sadly, in the wider church world, at least in America, I believe the church has forgotten many of the basics of Christian faithfulness and biblical fidelity. So many of the things that the Bible holds to be fundamental to Christianity have become muddled and confused in the contemporary church scene. Simple questions like what is a Christian, what is a church, what is the gospel, will today invite a very broad range of answers among professing Christians. And of course, answering these basic questions incorrectly can cause untold harm and damage. Confusion on these fundamentals of Christian truth mar the testimony of the church, compromise the church's health, and paralyze the church's witness in the world. Now, one of these basic issues over which Christians are often confused, and one that I believe is among the most consequential, is the issue of leadership in the church. 
The expectation for pastors, those are the church's leaders, the expectations for pastors today are a far cry from the vision we have laid out for us in the scriptures. Pastors today are seen more as CEOs or gurus or even life coaches. Their primary responsibilities are understood to be growing the church, enlarging the budget, leading successful capital campaigns, giving helpful advice, and churning out lots of programs to entertain people of all ages. But seldom do people stop and ask the question, are these notions of what it means to be a pastor in line with the Bible? Do they reflect the will of God as revealed in Scripture? After all, friends, what is a pastor according to God's Word? And what description are we given of His work? And it's important we get this right, vital we get this right, because a failure to properly understand both the qualifications as well as the basic work of the pastor will lead to all kinds of dysfunction and harm in churches. I think it's generally true, not always true, but generally true that the health of the church will not be better than the health of her ministers. And sadly, some among us even can testify to this as you've seen firsthand the harm that can come to a church when her ministers either fail to meet the biblical qualifications or depart from true pastoral work that the Bible calls them to. Our passage this morning helps us in setting forth something of a biblical vision for the work of pastors. By itself, it doesn't represent everything the Bible says about pastors, elders, the church's leaders, but it captures, I think, in short compass, something that is basic to the office. It captures the heart of pastoral work. So essentially, all I want to do today is hold up this text in 1 Peter chapter 5, 1 through 5, and say, brothers and sisters, this is a pastor. I have four headings for our consideration of this passage. We'll spend by far most of our time on the first heading. Okay, so we'll consider number one, a call to faithful shepherding. Number two, qualities of faithful shepherding. Number three, the reward of faithful shepherding. And number four, submission to faithful shepherding. Consider with me first a call to faithful shepherding. Look with me again at verse one and the first half of verse two. So I exhort the elders among you as a fellow elder and a witness of the sufferings of Christ as well as a partaker in the glory that is going to be revealed, shepherd the flock of God that is among you, exercising oversight. Few observations about these verses. Number one, this exhortation is addressed specifically to the elders among these Christians in Asia Minor. It's addressed specifically to the elders, the leaders of the churches in Asia Minor. And we've seen Peter do this before as he writes to God's elect exiles scattered throughout Asia Minor, made up of various groups, all constituting various churches. We've seen before that Peter will sometimes address particular groups within those churches. So in chapter 2, Peter addresses those among the churches who were slaves in those days. In chapter 3, Peter addresses wives and also husbands. Now here in chapter 5, Peter is again addressing a subgroup within the church, particularly the church's leaders, the church's elders. All right, second observation, Peter highlights then his own unique position in giving this exhortation. And there's three things he says about himself. First, he exhorts them as a fellow elder. So Peter was likely, as he writes this book, we believe in the early 60s AD, he had been in Rome for probably 20 to 25 years, and he was pastoring a church or churches there. 
He was an elder. And he wants to say to the elders of these churches in Asia Minor, brothers, I'm in this work with you. I'm writing about you, uh, uh, to you, not about something I don't know anything about. I am laboring alongside you, with you, as a fellow traveler in the work of pastoring the church of the Lord Jesus Christ. Then he says, secondly, he identifies himself, not only as a fellow elder, but as a witness to the sufferings of Christ. And here, that's kind of code for Peter pulling rank. He's saying, I'm an apostle. Those apostles were those disciples who first saw the risen Lord. They were with him. They were witnesses. As Peter will say in the book of 2 Peter, he describes himself as an eyewitness to his majesty. So I was a witness to the sufferings of Christ. I'm writing to you as one who knew and saw the Lord Jesus, both before he died and after he was risen. And then thirdly and finally, he identifies himself as a partaker in the glory that is going to be revealed. He's saying, brothers, I have my eye on the prize just like you. I am laboring, I am working, I am seeking to be faithful with my eye on the glory that is to come. I write to you as a fellow elder busy in the work that you are busy in. I write to you as an apostle who saw the Lord Jesus. I write to you as one who is laboring for the same goal, who is a partaker of the glory that is to be revealed. All right, third, and now the main observation I wish to make about this passage, I want us to look at the exhortation itself. What does Peter exhort these elders to do? And the exhortation simply is to shepherd the flock of God that is among you, exercising oversight. So the main verb, the main imperative in the Greek is that word shepherd. It's a verb form of the word poimen, which means shepherd. You elders are to shepherd the flock of God, and one of the ways you do that is in exercising oversight. But shepherd is the main verb there. And there are a few things that should be noted about this exhortation, this charge. First of all, we should note that the work of an elder, those who would lead in the Lord's church, the work of an elder is the work of shepherding. The work of an elder is the work of shepherding. Now, I've said this often. I say this in our Exploring Emmanuel class, our new members class. I'll say this in sermons from time to time. We at Emmanuel believe those various terms the Bible uses, especially the New Testament uses, to describe the leaders in Christ's church. Presbyteros, elders, poimen, shepherds, episkopos, overseers, those various words that are used are all denoting the same office. So an elder is a pastor, is an overseer, is a bishop, all describing the same office in the church. So in this church, we will refer to our pastors as pastors, we'll sometimes refer to them as elders. We don't really use the words overseer and bishop, although if you want to put using those terms, the Bible would permit that. But all those terms, we believe, denote the same office. And one of the reasons we think that is because of this passage. Because all three words, presbyteros, elder, poimen, pastor, and episkopos, overseer, are used in this same passage to describe the elder. The elder is to be a shepherd, poimen, a pastor. And he is to exercise oversight. That is, he's to be a bishop or an overseer. All three words used to describe the same office. But this is what the elders do, right? They shepherd the flock, exercising oversight. This is a call to pastoral care for the people of God. This is shepherding the souls of God's people. This is feeding them on God's word, on knowledge and understanding. This is caring for them as an eager shepherd cares for the needs of the sheep. Brothers and sisters, this is a pastor. And what is sorely needed today is a return to a view of the office of elder that sees faithful shepherding as the very heart of pastoral work. 
This is what it means to be a leader in Christ church. Brothers and sisters, this is the job description to shepherd the flock of God. Well, how does an elder do this? How does an elder shepherd? Well, it's through a variety of means. First of all, faithful elders shepherd God's flock through faithful preaching and teaching. A faithful elder understands that the most important thing the flock needs is good food. God said in Jeremiah 3.15, he was going to give to his new covenant people, that's us, shepherds who will feed them on knowledge and understanding, who would feed them, of course, from the word of God. And the pastor understands this is his primary work. He seeks to feed God's people on the word of God, on knowledge and understanding. Preaching, brothers and sisters, is shepherding. The ministry of the word is at the heart of shepherding care for the flock. And let me just say, it is to be a kind of preaching that reflects actual knowledge of and accountability for the congregation. Here's what I mean by that. I I hope, brothers and sisters, that during the week you access really good sermons uh, online by noted preachers like Alistair Begg or John Piper or Sinclair Ferguson or whoever you're podcasting. If it's good, I'm glad you're, you're, you're listening to those messages. But never mistake the fact that those pastors are not your pastor. They don't know you. They won't answer to God for your soul. A really good conference address, preach midweek, praise God for that, but it's not the same thing as pastoral preaching in a local church on a Sunday morning. Those men will not give an account for your soul, but those who would stand up to preach Sunday by Sunday in the local church who are covenanted to be pastors and elders and shepherds of the flock, they are to preach in such a way that reflects actual knowledge of the audience to whom they are preaching, and it is a function of the sort of shepherding care that the elders and leaders of the church are to bring to the people. Preaching in the church is shepherding. But there are other ways, elder shepherd, of course. Pastors shepherd the flock by praying regularly for the sheep. Pastors shepherd the flock by protecting the flock against error and false teaching. Elders must be wise men who can help the congregation discern truth from error. Elders shepherd the flock, furthermore, through personal interactions during the week or after the service or during the fellowship picnic. Personal interactions whereby he seeks to apply specific helps based on specific needs. Here's a radical idea. Pastors should know the names of the members in his church. Uh, There was an article a brother in the church shared with me a couple of years ago, and that was the title, Pastors, You Should Know Their Names. Duh. And a lot more besides, right? You should know maybe something about their children, something about their job, something about what their unique spiritual needs are. He needs to have knowledge of the flock if he's going to shepherd them appropriately. As one man has said, pastors ought to smell like the sheep. They've been among the flock. They've had the sheep in their homes. They're involved in their lives. They've developed some personal knowledge of the flock. The faithful shepherd knows the sheep and understands their peculiar needs. He knows that this one has a weak leg and that one tends to lag behind the rest of the flock. And this one might have a tendency to stray and that one is particularly stubborn and needs a little bit more of the rod. And this one tends to run ahead of the flock and sometimes runs into danger. You get the idea. He knows the flock he is called to shepherd. Of course, he can't know everything. And it's not his responsibility to initiate every pastoral interaction but he is to be accessible to the flock. He shepherds the flock through real personal engagement with the sheep. 
Furthermore, he shepherds the flock by being watchful over their lives to see if some harmful vice or sin pattern is taking root in their lives. He cares enough to warn and to caution and to correct. He wants to see the souls of Christ's flock, as Paul says in Colossians, presented mature in Christ on the last day, and so he seeks to help them. What do I want us to appreciate here? Shepherding is the heart of the work of the elder. And I think this is a helpful corrective for us, our modern notions about what pastors are called to do. I think some have lost their way on this. How, how in 21st century American evangelicalism do churches normally go about finding a pastor? Typically, you would take six or eight or ten of the most influential members in the church and you form, they call them different things, a pastoral search committee or a leadership team or something like that that is tasked to find the next pastor. And then what that committee does is they form a basic job description for the pastor and they receive resumes, post a job maybe on a seminary job board or something like that, or they find a contractor who will help them, and they will post a job description and invite resumes, and then resumes come in, and then that pastoral search committee will take in those resumes, evaluate them, pick the best candidates, interview them, and then the last stage is if they really like the candidate, well, he'll come and he'll preach his candidating sermon, which normally is 10 times better than his average stuff because it's his best sermon, of course. He comes and he preaches the message, and then Maybe the church votes, maybe they don't, maybe that committee has authority just to appoint that elder. Okay, that is a terrible way to find a pastor. And you may say, well, Alex, you know, you're a very young pastor, that's kind of arrogant of you, and there are churches, much bigger than Emmanuel Church, that have been doing this for years and years and years. Fair enough. I would just ask, how's that going for you? What fruit has that produced? Could that process, borrowed and foisted on the church from the business world, could that process maybe contribute to the fact that most pastors have like a four-year tenure on average in churches? But we keep doing this, right? Though it regularly produces bad fruit. And, and what are typically the kinds of questions and points upon which these committees evaluate these elders? Well, what do they want to know? How much did you grow the church? This guy grew his church by 10%. This guy grew his church by 20%, and by that they mean attenders at the Sunday gathering. And, and they want to know, has he led a successful capital campaign? Because that's a big part of pastoral leadership, right? Building a bigger building. Has he achieved that? Has he done that in his career as a pastor? Okay, can, can I recommend a different approach? How about requiring on the resume some references from some of the needy widows of his previous church? Did he talk to them? Did he know them? Did he seek to help them? How about requesting references from a few parents in the previous church? Did he know the names of any of the children? Did he talk to them? Seek to get to know them personally. If you believe that the heart of pastoral work is managing assets, well then you'll be very interested in the attendance and the building project and the budget. If you are interested in whether or not this man has the heart of a shepherd and cares for the flock, well, then you'll take a little more interest in the word of widows and nine-year-old boys and girls. The heart of pastoral work is shepherding the flock. And what we should want in our elders, I'm not saying it's unimportant that he could help lead the church in a successful building campaign, whatever that entails, 
But if we're thinking scripturally, if we're thinking God's thoughts after him, if we're trying to derive our job description for the work of the elder from what God has revealed in his word, wouldn't we think that the primary work that these men are called to do is to care for God's people, to shepherd the flock, exercising oversight? Shepherding involves pastoral care and at times pastoral correction. It involves leadership and stewardship to guide and direct the flock. It requires that pastors know their sheep and provide personal and direct care for the flock. This is why Peter says elders are to shepherd the flock exercising oversight. They are given stewardship from God to care for these souls and they are to oversee their spiritual well-being and to care for them on earth. This is the work of the faithful pastor. But there's yet more I want you to appreciate and see in this exhortation. I want you to appreciate, secondly, that this flock is described as God's flock. You see that? Shepherd the flock of God, or shepherd God's flock that is among you. This idea of pastors being given stewardship of a flock that belongs ultimately to the Lord is found in other passages, such as Acts 20, verse 28, where Paul addresses the Ephesian elders, and he says, this in Acts 20, 28, pay careful attention to yourselves and to all the flock in which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers to care for the church of God, which he obtained with his own blood. Pastors, elders, overseers, shepherds are entrusted as under shepherds to shepherd God's flock. They are Christ's sheep. They belong to him, not to the church's pastors. The church's pastors are Christ's delegates, his representatives, his stewards, his under-shepherds, entrusted by the Lord Jesus with the work of shepherding and overseeing his people. And perhaps your mind has already gone to John 10. Peter was there in John 10, where the Lord describes himself as the good shepherd. The good shepherd calls each of the sheep by name and he leads them out. And the good shepherd is the one who lays down his life for the sheep. This is why Peter will refer in our passage in 1 Peter 5 verse 4, he's going to call Jesus the chief shepherd. He heard these words from the lips of the Lord, I am the good shepherd. I'm the one who lays down my life for my sheep. And you might be thinking also of Peter's unique commission to serve as a leader of the Lord's people and a shepherd of the flock. In John 21, the end of John's gospel, after Peter has fallen and denied the Lord, and after now he has been restored, what does the Lord ask Peter? Three times he says, Simon, son of John, do you love me? And Peter three times makes his affirmations, Lord, you know that I love you. You know all things. You know that I love you. And what does the Lord tell him? Feed my sheep. Tend my lambs, they're mine, Peter. I shed my blood for them, and you will be one of my under-shepherds, one of my stewards to care for the flock. One of the promises made in Jeremiah and Ezekiel is that God would send true-hearted shepherds to care for his flock. The shepherds of Israel had been bad shepherds. They were bad men. And the Lord says, I'm going to take my flock from you, and I'm going to appoint true shepherds over my people, and they would prove to be his provision for the Lord's flock. So pastors know this, one of the great failings of the shepherds of Israel was that they used the sheep for their own gain and their own advantage. They abused them, and they did not exercise faithful stewardship of their callings 
to shepherd the Lord's people. So I just want to read this to you from Ezekiel chapter 34. Here the Lord is addressing unfaithful shepherds on their poor stewardship of his flock. And so Ezekiel 34 verse 2, we read this. Thus says the Lord God, Ah, shepherds of Israel who have been feeding yourselves, should not shepherds feed the sheep? You eat the fat. You clothe yourselves with the wool. You slaughter the fat ones, but you do not feed the sheep. The weak you have not strengthened. The sick you have not healed. The injured you have not bound up. The strayed you have not brought back. The lost you have not sought. And with force and harshness you have ruled over them. So they were scattered because there was no shepherd. And they became food for all the wild beasts. My sheep were scattered. They wandered over all the mountains and on every high hill. My sheep were scattered over all the face of the earth with none to search or seek for them. Therefore, you shepherds, hear the word of the Lord. Thus says the Lord God, behold, I am against the shepherds. And I will require my sheep at their hand and put a stop to their feeding the sheep. They no longer shall the shepherds feed themselves. I will rescue my sheep from their mouths that they may not be food for them. Pastors in our day should take this warning to heart. They are not to use and abuse the flock. They're not to take advantage of them for personal gain. They're not to use the sheep to build a platform for themselves. They are never to be heavy-handed or abusive in their leadership of the flock. Rather, they are to be good stewards and faithful shepherds because they recognize these are the Lord's sheep for whom He Himself died and shed his blood. How much care they ought to take in shepherding God's flock. They are given temporary oversight of the Lord's people and should discharge their duty in the light of this. They belong to Christ. And because this is so, how they ought to be loved and cherished and cared for. It's important that pastors know that. But it's not only important for pastors to know that. The flock needs to know this. Brothers and sisters, you need to know, we need to know that we belong ultimately to Christ. Understanding this, I think, places the under-shepherds, the pastors of the church, in proper perspective. This man who serves as an elder, as good and faithful as he may be, is only an under-shepherd. He's a pale reflection of the chief shepherd. The Lord wants me as a member to appreciate these men as gifts from Christ's hand, but I am never to give to them the allegiance and devotion reserved only for the good shepherd. My hope is not ultimately in my pastor's ability to be faithful and to encourage me, but in the work of Jesus Christ, the true shepherd who lays down his life for the sheep. He is the only true shepherd of my soul. And this perspective, I think, brothers and sisters, it allows us to rightly appreciate in proper perspective the gift that faithful pastors are. It also helps us to deal appropriately with their failures. Every under-shepherd, even the good ones, will in some ways disappoint us and fail us. But if we recognize this man is not supposed to be Christ for me, He's an imperfect, hopefully though, faithful under-shepherd of the Lord. I can process and understand appropriately his failings. But also this perspective I think helps us to set our hope fully on the chief shepherd who is in every way perfect and can satisfy the needs of our souls. Last observation, very briefly, with his exhortation, 
Peter tells the elders to shepherd the flock of God that is among you. That is to say, pastors, you are responsible for the membership of your church, the flock of God gathered in your own local body. The obvious application for us is that pastors of this church are not responsible for what goes on in the Southern Baptist Convention, not responsible for what goes on in the wider church world, but they are answerable for what goes on among the flock that is among them. Also, this is a reason why I think it's very important we have church membership. The membership in the church delineates for the pastors who is among their flock. So visitors here and regular attenders, very happy that you're with us. So glad that you can gather with us Sunday by Sunday. But something you need to know is that none of the elders of this church view themselves as answerable to Christ for your soul. Love you. Would love it if you joined here or another healthy church. The elders of this church will be answerable for the membership of this church. The flock of God that's been marked off as the flock. And my encouragement to you would be, in due time, find a healthy church. Again, whether it's this one or somewhere else where there are faithful, godly men of integrity who can shepherd your souls in the way 1 Peter calls them to in this passage. Okay, that was the first point. The next three will be much faster. We've considered a call to faithful shepherding. Secondly, let's consider qualities of faithful shepherding. Consider with me qualities of faithful shepherding. Let's look again now at verses 2 and 3. Peter says to the elders, the leaders of the church, shepherd the flock of God that is among you, exercising oversight. And then he introduces three contrasts here that I'm calling qualities of faithful shepherding. Not under compulsion, but willingly as God would have you. Not for shameful gain, but eagerly. Not domineering over those in your charge, but being examples to the flock. Three contrasts, three qualities of faithful shepherding that are highlighted. Let's consider each one briefly. Number one, the elder is not to serve under compulsion, but willingly as God would have you. No elder is to be compelled to serve, but rather should do so because he desires the work and freely chooses to serve as an elder, and in God's providence is able to serve as an elder. A man should never be guilted into serving as an elder and should never be compelled by external pressure from a church body. Rather, he is to pursue the work in accord with his own will and personal desire for the work of shepherding God's people. And he is to do so literally, the passage says, according to God. The ESV says, as God would have you, but the actual literal Greek is according to to God, which I think essentially means that the man is to pastor according to the will of God. He understands this to be God's will for his life. He is to have this confidence that God has called him to do this, and there is no conflict in his mind between what God is calling him to do and what he is actually doing. He chooses freely and voluntarily to serve, believing it to be God's will, and he's not to be compelled to serve in that office. Friends, we should want our pastors to want to do their work. And we want them to feel that they're being used of God. We should want them to be glad in their work. We don't want them to feel burnt out. We should want them to feel that they are precisely where God is having them for this season in their lives. And more than that, if a man feels it's time to leave the ministry and step down, either for a season or permanently, 
the congregation, in light of this passage, should warmly and sympathetically receive that from that man and not make him feel guilty or somehow he's letting them down. Elders are to serve willingly and not under compulsion. And we should be receptive to how our elders discern God's will and God's leading in their lives. Let him serve not under compulsion, but willingly as God would have him. Second contrast, he's not to serve for shameful gain, but eagerly. This is one of those times I wish we used the King James Version of the Bible. The King James Version says he's not to serve for filthy lucre. That just sounds so much better than shameful gain. Filthy lucre. But we'll have to stick with shameful gain. The idea is he's not to use the flock or his position to personally enrich himself. Now, this is not a prohibition against pastors being supported financially for gospel ministry. The New Testament teaches elsewhere that there are times to pay pastors, even requires it in some settings. However, it is to say that the ministry ought not to be a pathway to riches for the man who would serve as an elder. He's not to think, you know, I can really make a lucrative career out of this, and I can grow my platform, and I can do this, and then do that, and boy, then, man, we'll have some real money pouring in. Pastors should be the sort of men who would engage in the work of the ministry even if they were not paid. And again, I'm not saying you shouldn't pay your pastors. The Bible teaches that certain pastors should be paid, but they're not to do the work for the paycheck. They're not trying to to get shameful gain by the ministry and service they offer to the congregation. Rather, they're to serve because they love the flock and because they love the gospel, and they're ready to eagerly give themselves to that work. Third and final contrast, not domineering over those in your charge, but being examples to the flock. Literally, not lording it over those in your charge, not domineering word we might use is not being heavy-handed. Now, I want to tread lightly here because I know many Christians have experienced heavy-handed leadership in the past. Let me observe this. This charge that the elders to shepherd the flock exercising oversight, that he's not to be domineering, it assumes, doesn't it, that the elders do have authority in the church. Elders are, in other places in the New Testament, said to rule or manage the household of God. They are, in some texts, referred to as those who rule over God's people in the Lord. That's not language we use today. That might have negative connotations in your mind, but that's the literal language that's used. They rule over God's people. There is significant authority and leadership granted to those men truly called to be elders in the church, those truly called. Because genuine authority and we could even say power, is given to these men, there is the opportunity to abuse that power and that authority. And sadly, many have. Well, what is the solution? We live in an age with lots of pastors who violate the principles of this passage. They use the flock for shameful gain. They're heavy-handed in their posture toward the sheep, even spiritually abusive to some. What's the solution to that problem scripturally. Hear me here, I think this is really important because I think some people are doing this and, and shouldn't be doing this. The solution is not to void the office of its God-given authority. 
or to whittle down our expectations of our pastors. We know what? Too many pastors have been bad pastors, and they've done poorly. Um, let's, let's give them a simple list of to-dos that they're required to do, set up a board over them, and then we won't have this problem of heavy-handed pastors anymore. Friends, that's not an option for us. As long as Christ purposes to use fallible men as shepherds in his church, there will always be the danger of an abusive leadership. That said, I do think the scriptures give us some ways to guard against domineering or heavy-handed or abusive leadership in the church. Three things I would suggest, and I think we see these in the Bible. Number one, if you want to make sure you don't have abusive and heavy-handed pastors who lord it over the congregation or domineering over those in their charge, number one, appoint faithful men. Insist that he meet the biblical qualifications, all of them. One of the reasons I think there are so many, I'll just say jerks in ministry, is because whoever evaluated and assessed those men did not insist that he meet all of the biblical qualifications. The man of God is not to be quarrelsome. Those who would be elders in the church are to be gentle, Paul says in 1 Timothy 3. So what should we do? We should make the front door to the pastorate narrow. Not so narrow that no man can enter unless he's nearly perfect. Pastors are sinners too. They are allowed their failings and weaknesses but we should make the front door to the office of pastor as narrow as Scripture makes it. He has to meet the qualifications laid out in 1 Peter 3 and Titus 1 and here in our passage in 1 Peter 5. It's funny, so many people believe that God has given them the gift of teaching and preaching. People often view that as their, their gift. It's the one gift in all the New Testament that the apostles say is extremely rare. Like the Holy Spirit doesn't give this gift often. James tells us not many of you should be teachers. There's a narrowness to the office of teacher or preacher in the church. Paul says, do not lay hands hastily on a man. The front door to the office should be narrow, and only those who are faithful men who meet the biblical qualifications should be admitted into the leadership of the church. But secondly, we should insist that no man assume the office of elder without the consent of the flock. So, so pastors don't hire other pastors. Rather, they can recommend an elder to the congregation, and that man may serve as a shepherd of the flock only if he has the consent of the flock. I think this is a principle we see borne out in Scripture. But thirdly, if we want faithful shepherds, who will not be domineering and heavy-handed in their leadership, we should pursue the biblical norm of a plurality of elders. It's not sinful to have one pastor. In some settings, that's all you have. The Bible doesn't require that you must have. But the biblical norm seems to be that the churches were led by a plurality of pastors. And I'm not just talking about a nominal plurality where you have the CEO pastor and then a bunch of yes-men or something like that. Like, I'm talking about true plurality. Actual parity. No guy gets two votes, but there is a team of faithful men who mutually hold one another accountable, and in that, I think the Lord, by His good providence, has purposed that there would be a system of checks and balances, no rogue elders or maverick elders who could foist the church in one direction or another. If we want accountability for our leaders, it's appropriate to pursue the biblical norm, the biblical pattern of a plurality 
of elders. Peter says elders are not to domineer, but rather they're to be examples. What a contrast. The men who would serve as elders are to be known among the congregation. Their pattern of life should commend them to the ministry that they assume, and people should have confidence from experience in the basic moral integrity of their leaders. The members of the church should be able to point to the lived example of their pastors and say, this is what basic Christian faithfulness looks like. As one man has said, uh, something like, uh, pastors aren't like extraordinary super Christians. Rather, pastors are those who do the ordinary things in the Christian life extraordinarily well. They're examples to the flock. Okay, now the third point. We considered a call to faithful shepherding. Third, or Secondly, the qualities of faithful shepherding. Now, thirdly, the reward of faithful shepherding. I'm going to be briefer here than what I have in my notes. Verse 4 says, and when the chief shepherd appears, you, you elders who have led faithfully, you will receive the unfading crown of glory. In the New Testament, uh, often the apostles will speak of Christians who persevere unto the end as receiving a certain type of crown, the crown of glory. It's, 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 it's for Christians who have persevered faithfully through suffering and through hardship. It's for God's people who have made it to the end and have gone through the river of death, and they come out the other side more than conquerors, and they are given a crown. That is the reward for all faithful followers of the Lord Jesus Christ. In those days, it would be the reward of an athlete who maybe comes first in a race. They would have a crown, usually a kind of wreath of flowers woven together that was placed on their head. Or after victory in a battle, those who were victors would wear a certain crown. They would be given a certain crown on their heads. That's the image that's used for faithful Christians who make it to the end. That is the reward that's held out for all of us. But I think Peter in this passage is talking about a special kind of reward given to pastors who serve faithfully. It is called the unfading crown of glory. That word unfading is actually a word that appears only once in the Bible, the Greek word that's behind that English word. It's the amaranth crown of glory. Amaranth is a flower. It's a flower that burns a deep crimson red, beautiful red color. And the amazing thing about the amaranth flower is that when you pluck it from its stem, it doesn't wither. Rather, it stays that vibrant color of red. And more than that, if you pour a little moisture on the flower, the red deepens and burns more brightly. And thus, it became a symbol of that which is immortal or that which is unfading. For elders who serve well, Peter is saying that they receive the amaranth crown of glory from Christ. And here's what I think he's envisioning. I hope this doesn't sound too irreverent, but... I think on the last day, there'll be something like Jesus calling his under-shepherds into his office. They were given stewardship over his flock. How'd they do? Were they like the cruel shepherds, the false shepherds of Ezekiel 34? Or were they like faithful shepherds of 1 Peter 5? For all those pastors who serve faithfully under Christ's charge, they will receive this crown. Let me just say this and move on. For those presently or who in the past have served as elders of the Lord's people, it's not inappropriate for you to think about this reward. It's given to you for your encouragement. And then let me say secondly that those here who aspire to the office of pastor, and maybe those who should aspire to the office of pastor, this should elevate in your minds the nobility of the pastoral call. 
Jesus holds this office in a special place. And there's this special recognition and favor he gives to those who serve in this office well. Number four, and finally, we've considered a call to faithful shepherding, qualities of faithful shepherding, the reward of faithful shepherding. Fourthly and finally, submission to faithful shepherding. I'm really just working with the beginning of verse five. Likewise, you who are younger, be subject to the elders. I don't think we should trip up over that word younger. I don't think that Peter is requiring that the elders have to be literally the oldest men in the church. You have to remember in these days, the spectrum of ages in the church would be much more narrow than the kind of spectrum of ages we see in our churches today. Average life expectancy was way less. One in 20 would have lived into their 60s. One in five would have lived into their 50s. Most elders probably would have been in their 30s and 40s and typically would have been among the more senior members of the church. But I don't think Peter is saying either this is a charge only for the youngest members in the church or only for those members who are younger than the pastors. I think he's acknowledging that the elders have some position of spiritual seniority of some kind. They've been given that office and these are those spiritually who serve under them as members of the church. At least that's my opinion. I want to focus rather now on what he calls them to. You who are younger, and I think that means all the members of the church, you who are under the spiritual direction of these elders, Peter says be subject to them. Submit to them. It is Christ's design in his church to rule and oversee the church through faithful shepherds who are called of God, qualified according to the Bible and recognized by the church. To such men, God's people are called to submit. This directive from the Holy Spirit through Peter is not complicated or hard to understand. He simply says, be subject, submit to the elders. Nor is this the only place in the Bible that calls the members of the church to submit to their elders. A couple of examples, 1 Thessalonians 5.12, we ask you, brothers, to respect those who labor among you and are over you in the Lord and admonish you to esteem them very highly in love because of their work. Hebrews 13, 17, obey your leaders and submit to them, for they are keeping watch over your souls as those who will have to give an account. Let them do this with joy and not with groaning, for that would be of no advantage to you. Submit to them as those who will be interviewed by the Lord Jesus on the last day and will give an account for your souls. These passages, like the one in 1 Peter 5, 5, are not controversial, and the expectations seem pretty basic and clear. Members of the church should submit to faithful elders. However, some among the Lord's people find the requirements of these passages difficult, and understandably so. Difficult for at least three reasons. Number one, this call to voluntarily subject ourselves to a group of men is not in keeping with the spirit of the age. Right, so we live in a climate, in a culture that is brazenly anti-authority. And the idea that I would voluntarily submit myself and my family to the leadership and spiritual oversight and direction of a group of men, that just grates against my intuitions about myself and about them and about the world. A second reason I think many people find this imperative from Peter hard to digest is because submission to any authority requires humility, and humility doesn't come easily. I gotta submit. 
I got to submit myself to this pastor, to this group of men, and I just, I don't find that easy to do. But third, and really most heartbreakingly, many who have assumed the office of pastor have given the Lord's people good reason to distrust them. I say many who have assumed the office, they weren't true shepherds. They were jokers who somehow made it in through the back door, and they misused the authority entrusted to them. And it has caused many of the Lord's people to distrust leadership in general, not just those men in particular. The problem is they don't just figure, okay, I was burned by this guy, fool me once. They lose trust in the institution itself. It's not uncommon in our day for people to give up on the institution of marriage along similar lines. They witnessed a bad marriage, maybe between their father and their mother. In some setting, they witnessed the institution of marriage break down, and they conclude, I'm never getting married. They can't see past the bad experience without projecting it on the institution itself. People give up on the institutional church for this reason. They have a bad experience in a local church, and they're like, you know, I'm just, I'm, I'm, I'm good with Jesus, but I'm, I'm done with churchy stuff. I just can't really do that. I got burned by a church once, and I can't, I can't allow myself to trust again. Similarly, people experience real abuse at the hands of pastors. And they conclude, well, I, I can't trust like that again. I'm not going to put myself under the authority of pastors again. Well, let me give a few practical words of help and encouragement. If that's you, and you're struggling with this call of Peter to, ex- to subject yourself to the leadership of the local church. Number one, let me say the obvious. Peter here does not call Christians to absolute submission to elders. You are not required, brothers and sisters, to follow false teachers and bad men. You are actually required, according to Galatians 1, to oppose them. It's legitimate if you conclude the leaders of the local church are false teachers, unqualified, or bad men. It's okay to just leave that church and not submit to those men or seek to work for those men's removal from the office. You're not required to submit absolutely to every elder who comes and says, you need to submit to me. I I think that Peter is saying, essentially, you're to submit to the kind of elders described in 1 Peter 5, 1 through 4. To faithful shepherds, God's people are called to submit. Secondly, this is especially important if you've been burned by a pastor before. You've been hurt under heavy-handed leadership. You have to remember, brothers and sisters, the biblical vision. Faithful elders, faithful elders, who are placed in authority over us, are seen as gifts from Christ. They're meant to help us flourish in the Christian life. You read those promises in the Old Testament prophets about the coming new covenant, and these faithful shepherds that God is going to give, they're going to tend the flock. They're going to feed God's people on knowledge and understanding. They're going to be wonderful men, men after God's own heart. Faithful shepherds are God's provision for his people. And I'll just just give this soft challenge. Don't elevate your bad experience so highly in your mind that it would jeopardize your ability to receive what God has for you in his word. I know that's a hard word because I know some are really hurt by pastors, really burned by churches. But God has a purpose for his church. The church is still his bride, which he bought with his blood. 
God has given faithful shepherds to his people to lead his people in knowledge and understanding. You need, brother and sister, faithful shepherds in your life. It's one of the greatest blessings under heaven, and I urge you to find it. And when you find it, to submit yourself as God would have you under the authority structures that God has put in place for the flourishing and the prosperity of his people. Authority is not inherently a bad thing. It is God's provision for us. I was going to have us turn to 2 Samuel 23, 1 through 4. You can just mark that maybe in your notes. Let me just read it to you, okay? 2 Samuel 23, these are David's last words, King David. We consider Jesus' last words in the equip class. These are David's last words. And in 2 Samuel 23, listen to what he says. Now, these are the last words of David. The oracle of David, the son of Jesse, the oracle of the man who was raised on high, the anointed of the God of Jacob, the sweet psalmist of Israel. And here's what he says. The spirit of the Lord speaks by me. His word is on my tongue. The God of Israel has spoken. The rock of Israel has said to me, when one rules justly over men, ruling in the fear of God, he dawns on them like the morning light, like the sun shining forth on a cloudless morning, like rain that makes grass to sprout from the earth. What's David saying? Good authority. Faithful men that God gives to care for his people. It's like the sun breaking forth on a cloudless morning by which we're warmed. It's like rain descending on the grass of God's people and helping them to grow and to flourish. This is God's design for faithful leadership. And may God help us each to submit ourselves to such leadership as the Lord provides. Third and last thing I'll say as we close. Friends, remember that the best of men are men at best. And though we ought to insist on high character and integrity in our elders, they will never be perfect men. In some cases, in fact, all cases, they will disappoint us. They need not be perfect for us to follow their lead. But I say this to say, there is one who will never disappoint us. Your pastors, brothers and sisters, if they're doing their job right, are to point you to the chief shepherd, to the good shepherd, Faithful pastors at their best, like the very best of pastors. Your pastor could be Charles Spurgeon. They're pale reflections of the good shepherd, of the shepherd of Psalm 23 who leads us in the paths of righteousness and leads us beside still waters for his namesake, who holds us and walks with us through the valley of the shadow of death, who causes our cups to run over. And so as you perceive and observe the failings of under-shepherds placed over you, let that only point you to the chief shepherd, the good shepherd who will never leave you or forsake you and who will never let you down. And listen to me, I'm talking about the elders of this church, not just like bad men out there. I'm talking about pastors here. We will fail you. We will disappoint you. We can't be Christ for you. You must go to the good shepherd and you will find in him everything that your soul wants. You will find him to be your soul's delight, and he will perfectly feed you forever and ever and ever. Let's pray together. Our Father in heaven, we trust your providence 
and your good purposes in designing your church in such a way that you would place certain men, fallible men, weak men, but men who have your stamp and your approval to lead your flock. We pray that you would help us to ever find such men from among our assembly who can serve in that office, that capacity, and upon setting them aside for this work to submit to them, we pray, Father, that you would spare us from false shepherds, from unfaithful men, men who would use the flock for shameful gain, men who would be domineering over the souls that they care for or are called to care for. Please give us faithful men, faithful shepherds over the house of God, men that can receive the commendation from the chief shepherd on the last day. But Lord, we thank you so much that the good shepherd is not like us. We thank you that he can never fail us. We thank you that he is in every way perfect. We thank you that he knows us each by name. He's numbered the hairs on our heads. He knows the flock. We pray that we as a sheep would hear his voice and follow his lead. We pray that we would experience delight and joy in his presence. We pray that we would experience his faithful leadership all the days of our life, that we might dwell in the house of the Lord forever. We thank you for that picture held out for us in the book of Revelation, that the day is coming when one day, Lord Jesus, you will lead your flock by streams everlasting in paradise. Hasten the coming of that day. Help us to long for that day. In the meantime, please shepherd your flock and be faithful, Father, we pray to do it through faithful men who can lead your people. We pray these things in Jesus' name, amen.